Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 474 of So You Want to Be a Writer, the podcast that's all about writing and publishing. My name's Valerie Koo. I'm CEO of the Australian Writer Centre and your host. We talk about all things to do with the world of writing, publishing, and how to succeed as an author or writer. I hope you've had a productive week since we last caught up. I've just gone through a weekend full of admin. My friend Michelle told me that she was going to spend Saturday adminning. So I thought, you know, what a great idea. I have a huge pile of admin work, you know, work admin and life admin that I needed to get through. And it always makes me feel so guilty. And I was sick of feeling guilty that, you know, I wasn't getting through it. So I thought I'd finally do something about it. So I armed myself with coffee and I powered through and I actually got so much done and felt such a sense of achievement. I texted her uh, at the end of it and just told her how successful it was. Anyway, I was so excited that I thought, oh, I'll spend Sunday doing more of the same. I know, I had a, I have a very exciting life, but honestly, I feel so much better for it. I did manage to get to my favorite cafe on both days and I brought little fluffy Rex with me on one of those days. So I did manage to get out and I did do other things. I wasn't admitting the whole time. I've been reading The Tricky Art of Forgiveness, which is a lovely book by Meredith Jaffe. It's um, absolutely gorgeous. And I've also been wondering how to spend my Audible credits. I've got 12 credits to spend. I do prefer reading fiction in written form as opposed to listening to it, though. But I do like spending my Audible credits on not fic- on non-fiction. So if anyone has a recommendation, do let me know in the Facebook group. Now, I want to give a big shout out to Stephanie Wood, author Stephanie Wood, who we've interviewed on the podcast before on episode 302. Now, Stephanie is an incredibly talented writer and she wrote the memoir, Fake, a startling true story of love in a world of liars, cheats, narcissists, fantasists, and phonies. You may remember her from episode 302. If you didn't hear it, it's definitely worth going back to because this book was sparked by an article she wrote for Good Weekend about how she had been romantically duped by a guy who lied about basically everything in his life. And she received such a huge response from people that she figured it could be worth writing a book about. And I have to say it was a fantastic read, not just because of the topic being fascinating, but because honestly, I just marveled at her actual writing, her structure, her ideas, and the very dignified way she told this very personal story. Anyway, the response from readers of the book continues to this day, she says, and she is now in an Australian story, an episode of Australian story called Fake, where she meets and interviews other women who've gone through a similar experience with a romantic partner who is a narcissist or a liar and a fantasist and basically who's just making stuff up all the time. And it makes for compelling viewing if you want to catch it on the ABC's iView. So that's on Australian Story. Now let's move on to our writing tip this week because I want to talk about 
comp titles because somebody asked the question the other day in one of uh, our creative coaching sessions, I think, about comp titles. And you may or may not have heard of them. Uh, If you've been working on a manuscript or attending writing workshops, you've probably heard of comp titles. And a lot of people mistake them for competitive titles. And that's a fair um, assumption that they that's what it could mean. But comp titles are comparison titles or sometimes called comparable titles. Uh, basically they're what they are what other books you can compare to your own manuscript. So comp titles are really important when you would want to describe your book to an agent or publisher so that they know roughly what to expect. And very often, in fact almost all the time, a publisher will ask you, well what are the comp titles, you know, to your manuscript. So comp titles help them to figure out where your book sits in terms of things like genre, tone, audience, characters, plot. It's important to have a think about them because you will invariably be asked this question. So it's good to have done your research so that you have an answer. Otherwise, they're going to ask you to go do your research and give them an answer anyway. Um, Comp titles or researching what your comp titles are, are also handy for readers so that they can tell whether or not they'll be interested in a particular book. For example, a book might say that it's perfect for lovers of Gone Girl or perfect for lovers of Leanne Moriarty or whatever. And that makes it easy for readers then to decide if they want to read it, especially if they loved Gone Girl or if they love Leanne Moriarty. So there's lots of information out there about comp titles and different agents and publishers will have slightly different views about how to select your own comp titles. For example, some agents say that you should never compare your book to a well-known classic like, you know, The Hobbit, whereas others say they like to see classic titles mentioned. But in general, it's a good idea to compare your book to two other reasonably well-known books. And you know, well-known as in, you know, the publishing industry. It doesn't have to have been so famous that it's been adapted into a Netflix series or something. But you don't want to compare it, say, to your friend's self-published book unless that book has done really, really well and is quite quite well-known. Some writers can't think of any books to compare to their own, and maybe that's you because, you know, they think that their story is so unique. So, First of all, if you can't think of any books that are similar to yours, then you know I would maybe you're not reading widely enough, or maybe you just need to do more research into what other comp titles um, are out there. Comparison titles or comparable doesn't also doesn't mean that the plot is the same. Usually, it means that the genre or the tone or the situation or the humor or the setting or 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 something like that, share similar similarities. And the reason you choose two comp titles it also is to show how your how unique your own book is. Like if it was something like, it's good to do like this in an intersection. So you might say it was steampunk Oliver Twist meets Jurassic Park. <laughs> so that's pretty original, but it also tells you that there's probably an orphan and a criminal guild involved, as well as dinosaurs. And possibly it's set in alternate Victorian London with genetic engineering. It's definitely worth thinking about your comp titles, 
whatever stage of writing your manuscript you're at. If nothing else, it will make it easier to explain to your friends and family. But importantly, it's going to make it easier to explain to a potential publisher and agent. So that's this week's tip, comp titles. Now let's move on to our giveaway this week. You could win one of three copies of Impossible by Sarah Lotz. Discover the book with the impossible twist. Meet Nick, failed writer, failed husband, dog owner. Meet B, serial data, dressmaker, Pringles enthusiast. One day their paths cross over a misdirected email. The connection is instant, electric. They feel like they've known each other all their lives. Nick buys a new suit, gets on a train. B steps away from her desk sets off to meet him under the clock at Euston Station. Think you know how the rest of the story goes? They did too. But this is a story with more twists than most. This is impossible. All right, so you could win one of three copies. Entries close on the 28th of March. Just go to writercentercomau slash win and follow the instructions and you could win one of these three copies. That's writercentercomau slash win. Now, everyone, are you ready for the word of the week? I hope so, because it's ready for you. The word of the week is Ouroboros. Ouroboros. What is it? Ouroboros. An Ouroboros, that's O-U-R-O, Ouroboros, B-O-R-O-S. An Ouroboros is a symbol, usually circular in form, of a serpent biting its own tail. And it's often misinterpreted as representing the cycle of life, you know, death and rebirth. You've probably encountered the Ouroboros symbol in maybe sci-fi or fantasy books and movies like The Wheel of Time, The Neverending Story, remember that? The oldest known Ouroboros is in the tomb of Tutankhamun, although It is found in lots of different cultures around the world, like in Greek and Norse mythology and in Hinduism, and it also became a symbol for alchemists in the Renaissance. Fun fact. Anyway, Ouroboros. Now, when you see that symbol of the serpent biting its tail, you can wow all your friends and say, well, look, look at that Ouroboros. And that was the word of the week. If you're enjoying this podcast, you may also like the book that Alison Tate and I have written together called So You Want to Be a Writer, How to Get Started While You Still Have a Day Job. Full of practical tips, motivation and inspiration, it's ideal for anyone who's thinking of dipping their toes into the wonderful world of writing. We've created a blueprint for aspiring writers to follow and it's suitable regardless of whether you want to plunge straight into this new career or if you need to explore it while you're still busy in your day job. Let us hold your hand as you turn your dream into a reality. Buy your copy today at soyouwanttobeariter.com.au forward slash book. Now let's move on to our writer in residence this week. I am so excited about this week's chat because I love the fact that we have seen this author go from strength to strength. We first interviewed her a while back now when she wrote her debut novel, which was The Barrier. And I'm talking about Shankari Chandran, but she's now up to her third novel. When we first interviewed Shankari back in episode 200, she had 
not long before completed courses at the Australian Writers' Centre and she released with Pan Macmillan her thriller The Barrier, which went on to great success. Her second book, beautiful book, is Song of the Sun God and now she has written an absolutely it's just wonderful. It's called Chai Time at Cinnamon Gardens, and I'm going to let her tell you all about it. So here is Shankari Chandran. Thank you so much for joining us today, Shankari. Thanks for having me, Val. Very excited to be here. I'm very excited. This is so beautifully written. This is such a fantastic book. Your latest book, Chai Time at Cinnamon Gardens, for listeners who have not got a copy yet. Can you tell us what it's about? Chai Time at Cinnamon Gardens um, follows the lives of the residents and the staff uh, at a nursing home in a fictional suburb in Western Sydney. It's set against the rising racism um, of contemporary Australia, but it flashes back to the lives of the elderly residents um, decades before in their ancestral homeland of Sri Lanka during the country's civil war. The novel is about the stories that the residents and the staff tell themselves and each other to keep their memories and their culture alive. There are so many layers to this novel. So I'm interested to know how it formed, which bit came first, the nursing home, the themes, the, you know, the, 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 the history. What, where did it all start? For me, the, the genesis of this novel was in a nursing home and it's been, it's based on the nursing home in, in Western Sydney where my grandmother lives and has lived for a number of years now and a lot of the residents there are Sri Lankan Tamil and so when we go to visit her and I'll take our four children with, um, with me, we will run into my cousins and to family friends who are all visiting their relatives and so at any given time you'll have four generations you know, in a room laughing and talking and telling stories and I thought this is a beautiful place of um, community and a beautiful Mm. place to set a story and so it started there and and there were little scenes you know the there's a scene that's set in the prayer room of the nursing home where the elderly you know engage you know they come to fisticuffs as it were um, over over sort of religious hierarchies and you know that came from spending prayer time with my grandmother in that room and seeing the kaftan brigade um, mm. and and so on and so that was the setting for it um, and then as I thought more and more about what I'd like to write, I knew what I'd always wanted to write it was a novel that explored race and the, the migrant experience more fully. And my previous novels had spoken very much to the, the Sri Lankan Tamil experience in Sri Lanka and their forced migration and had to some degree explored the creation of home. But I had never really spent a huge amount of time in Australia and what it meant for for those of us who've come here and tried to create a new home, but also to fit into the the existing and evolving identity of what it means to be Australian. And so that was the harder part of the story for me Mm. to really engage in some of those deeper, darker issues, um, honestly. And, and in some ways, I feel like I've been writing that part of the novel, Val, my entire life, because I've been thinking about those issues, what it means to be Australian and who gets to decide to the inclusion of some and the exclusion of others um, and where we fit in. Those ideas and thoughts and feelings have been in my mind and swirling in my heart for, for decades. Wow. Okay. So why did you want to put them in a book? Why did you want to you know, articulate all of 
that in a novel? Because I storytelling is my now my preferred mode of being, as it were. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, as you'll know, once you start writing, you can't stop, right? It, it becomes addictive and it's therapeutic and cathartic and energizing all at the same time. And um, so I, I love the literary form. And I've tried and experimented with other forms. And, and at the moment, I'm working on a, a television show adapting a, a short story that I wrote. And it's a really different form. And, and it's exciting and it's fast paced and interesting and requires different technical skills. But I love the way the novel or when you're writing the novel or when you're reading a novel, you can really sit in it and take time to get to know the characters um, to explore who they are and who they want to be, where they've come from and, and where they hope to go. And so that that has been a, a chosen and a loving form for me, much loved and loving. I feel it loves me back. Um, <laughs> but also I think because I am a lawyer and I've come from that social justice background, um, you know, the, the sort of bigger themes of life, the macro themes that concern the world that can profoundly affect and disadvantaged marginalized communities is also frequently on my mind. And it's what I do in my professional, my legal professional life. And mm. often I think that that life really spills into, if not, I directly, you know, it either spills into it accidentally and often I just directly draw on it and try to create um, or at least explore social change mm. um, through my literary work as much as I do through my legal work. And the reason I make that, that fine distinction, I think my legal work perhaps really does or, or potentially can lead to social change because that's what the law is supposed to do. And my literary work, I don't in any way wish to overstate the value of my literary work, it attempts to explore that same journey of social change and the reason for it. Mm. So I'm interested in knowing in the creative process, which part came first, because as you say, you've been thinking of some of these questions all of your life, just because of, you know, the situation that you're in, where you've grown up, the things that you've experienced and so on, right? So you've been thinking of these bigger themes and bigger questions all of your life, but then in the storytelling context, you have characters, you have setting, you have scenes. Did you think first when you started writing, okay, I know I'm sitting in a nursing home and uh, these are the themes mm-hmm. I want to explore or did you and, and then s- figured out how you would tell that through the characters or did you determine your characters and let it kind of just mm. unfold? Such a good question. Um, that's a real writer's question. <laughs> So with this particular novel, it was very, um, or not very, it was largely constructed. So I knew that I wanted to set it in a nursing home. Um, I had toyed with the idea of setting a a sort of quirky, whimsical novel in a nursing home. Mm -hmm. Um, And I've I've wanted to try to write something, um, and, and I don't mean this sort of pejoratively or hierarchically or um, qualitatively, I had want, I have wanted to write something more lighthearted you know, at some point in my life because I do the, my body of work, which I like to think of as a concept album, uh, if only to get my children's attention by using the phrase concept album, is, <laughs> you know, is concerned with themes of, of dispossession, you know, um, justice, genocide, forced migration, ira- cultural erasure, and the connections that we form to, to cope with all of that. So that is my body of work and I had when I I thought I would set a novel in a nursing home because there are so many funny stories that happen there I Mm. thought maybe I could make this a light novel 
and or lighter. And and then and yet I knew that I really wanted to explore race and that this place would be a good place or a good setting in which to do that. Mm. And so I did map out, all right, who are my who is going to drive a narrative about race? And I knew that I, and it was really, I found this novel technically and almost legally very hard because it does grapple with the the right to freedom of speech. Um, It grapples with what we consider to be hate speech and what do we consider to be racial vilification. Um, And, you know, there is a sort of uh, a narrative around reverse racism in the novel. What is it? And does it actually exist, right? And who gets to who gets to call that out? And so <laughs> then you have these characters, for example, who um, will argue the right to freedom of speech when they wish to to other other people. So when they wish to pick on and vilify minorities or um, people from the LGBTQI plus communities, they will hide behind the right to freedom of speech. However, then when they are called out for their bigotry, when they are accused of being racist or of being homophobic, they will then um, vilify that person who's called them out and, you know, totally deny their right to freedom of speech and Mm. accuse them of being un-Australian. And, you know, that that has been a big feature of the, the public and political discourse over the last, you know, 10 years that I've been back in Australia. Mm. And that has really troubled me. And I thought, right, I do want to explore this. I think I'm emotionally ready. And in the, in the arc of all of my writing, my writing is ready, I think. But I also really doubted my intellectual ability to do it. What? Um, yeah, I really, I mean, I, I mean, I think I daily suffer from anxiety and insecurities around my abilities across any number of key competencies that are required of me, Val. Um, but this one, I thought, you know, I'm really, because race is so important in Australia. Mm-hmm. It's so important to me. It's important to my family's life. It's affected our own physical and emotional journey from Sri Lanka to London to Australia. And it's so important in this country. It's this massive, frequently unspoken issue um, that stems from the foundation of modern Australia. And I thought, God, am I smart enough to do this? And I I was sort of reaching for something big, but terrified that I didn't have the ability to deliver it. And that would feel like a... um, like more of a failure than usual. You know, you sort of aim small and fail, you fail small, but if you aim big and fail, you fail big. Um, And so I felt it almost like a a sense of responsibility as well in terms of exploring it because there aren't many um, Sri Lankan Tamil authors Mm. or South Asian authors in Australia who have explored that issue in Australia because, you know, we could, between the two of us, I'm pretty sure we could name every every Australian Mm. novel on race Mm. Um, and so, yeah, I felt a sort of a responsibility around it. And I essentially talked myself into a, into a, you know, anxiety spiral. Um, (laughs) And then eventually just sat down, took a deep breath and constructed, these are the characters that I think will drive the action. These are the characters that I think need to interact with each other. Maya, the main character, I knew she was always there because, you know, she is this, I don't know why she was always there. She's she sort of physically looks a little bit like my grandmother, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, but she's actually emotionally 
a better version of myself in 50 years. So she's elderly. In fact, it's to be honest, it's like in 42 years. Um, <laughs> so in 42 years, I'm hoping to be like Maya. Um, so I always knew she was going to be there. And then I had to create characters around her that she would interact with who would drive particular storylines and, and both in the contemporary setting in Australia, but mm. also characters who would have a history set in Sri Lanka Mm. that linked to Australia's history that I also wanted to explore because the novel has two histories that intersect, not just Mm. the histories of the characters, where they are today, but where they were 20, 40 years ago, Mm. but also the histories of Australia's foundation or the modern nation state of Australia's foundation um, and Sri Lanka's foundation and the way in which in both those countries through colonization, cultural and historical narratives were appropriated Mm. and they were controlled by the colonizer in order to create a particular version of that country's foundation to create its origins story, as it were. Mm, mm. Um, And from that to then craft an identity that includes some and excludes others and create a sense of territorial legitimacy to use, you know, legal expression, um, to create that sense of ownership, who who is allowed to own the country, who's Mm. allowed to be there and who's not allowed to be there. And I wanted to try to explore both because I think we share so much of that in common, Sri Lanka Mm. and Australia, the home of my ancestors Mm. and the home of my choice. So based on everything you've just said, listeners, anyone who's listening, you can tell it's multi-layered and yet it is not heavy going. So it may sound like there's so many things that you need to think of and consider, but when you're reading this book, you are just brought straight into it seamlessly and it doesn't it it's not heavy going at all and I'm going to discuss that a little bit further because I tried to deconstruct why (laughs) but before we get to that um as you say there are you know different characters different themes different um time periods and locations obviously what did you have to do to map that out did you just start writing and see what happens or did you kind of think okay well I need I need this to happen here and I need to make sure that I tell this bit of history before I get to this or, you know, how did you organise yourself? Yeah, look, that's also a really good question. I reread two novels in the writing of this novel and I I think great writing is the best teacher for me. And um, so I reread Camilla Shumsey's Home Fire and I reread Leanne Moriarty's Big Little Lies. Okay. Um, because I think both novels use an, a person's perspective, re- the, the point of view really the point of view, well. Yeah, yeah they, they do POV really, really mm. well. And in Camilla Shumsey's Home Fire, what she does is, um, you know, there are five central characters. Each character gets one chapter and it she ends on a cliffhanger effectively and the next mm. chapter picks up where that left off mm-hmm. and there are clues seated throughout and, and it moves the story along. And so I actually tried to create that kind of structure. I also loved Big Little Lies and I tried and I actually failed because I ended up having to come back and forth between characters' points of view. Mm-hmm. Um, I also love Big Little Lies because there is there's heaviness and depth to it but incredible lightness as well, right? Yeah. With, with the fascinating lightness that she brings to it, it's almost not lightness of, of, of themes, but lightness of tone. 
And mm. so you keep, you read very quickly, not just because she's got clues and secrets and lies and, and, and plot twists and cliffhangers, but the lightness of the tone, I think, really moves you through very quickly. And so I was trying to channel um, both the sort of literary greatness of Camilla Shumsey and the commercial <laughs> greatness of Leanne Moriarty, um, which is why I'm so happy that you that you feel there was a lightness to it um, and mm. an ease of reading. And in terms of tracking the history, mm. I found with this particular novel that the flashbacks happened and, and the history, the, the jumps to the past, mm. ended up happening very organically. Mm. And I was surprised by that. And I think that I was probably experiencing uh, was very fortunate enough to experience flow at certain times. Mm. And so I would, you know, Maya would, you know, she would explore something or something would happen to her in the present and it would trigger a memory of the past. And then I would very naturally just allow myself to go there. And I trusted that in the end I would be able to fix anything that was um, that jarred or that did not mm. transition seamlessly in the editing process. And I think as a writer, as I've, as I've grown and matured as a writer, I have definitely allowed myself to, to do a crap first draft mm. and recognise that I will be able to solve all problems with the aid of, of brutal, you know, but <laughs> careful editing um, and also with feedback from, from my trusted advisors. And so mm. I was willing to kick certain cans down the road because otherwise I would be paralyzed with yes. performance anxiety, right? There's just <laughs> no way if you think you're going to get it, if I think I'm going to try to get it right first time around, it's not going to happen. Right. So when you say that the flashbacks and therefore the history have happened quite organically, is it because you had um, developed the character so well in your head that you knew already kind of knew what that history was going to be and therefore it was it made sense to be triggered or was it more I feel like it, there's going to be a, a Maya or whoever is going to remember something and let's explore what that is I don't know what it is yet but I'm going to write my way into it God, I mean, unhelpfully, it was probably a mix of both. But mm -hmm. I think I did know, I knew my key characters. And so the key flashbacks really occur with Maya and with Ruben. Yes. Um, and with those two characters, they were the most, I went into this novel loving both of them the most and being very clear about who they were as people far more than the other characters and the other characters. And I, and I don't wish to sort of undermine them or, or sell them short. The other characters are, you know, by the end of the novel and by the end of my rewrites, they were fully realized and they were nuanced real people. You know, you both love and hate Gareth, I think by the end of it. Um, but they initially in the first 50,000 words, the first draft, um, and that was just the first half of the novel. Um, those other characters were, were essentially just there to enable Maya and Ruben to do what they needed to do. And, and actually by the end of the first 50,000 words, I, with the exception of Maya and Ruben, I really didn't like anybody in the novel, <laughs> in, the ma in the manuscript. I just, you know, I was not in love with them in the way that I needed to be to spend so much time with them as you do when you're writing them. Mm. Um, and I didn't even, I didn't even hate my villains as it were <laughs> enough to want to keep hating them. Um, and so actually at the 50,000 mark, which was halfway through the manuscript, the, the original manuscript, I, I put it down. And for the first time in my life, I walked away from a manuscript and it was terrifying. Walked away for, 
forever or for how long or what? Um, what? I, for a good six months, actually. Uh-huh. And it was wow. really frightening because I've never done that before. I'm not very good at, at giving up on something, particularly with writing. I, I will, I've probably very much a danger of flogging dead horses. Um, <laughs> but I just could not see my way forward. Um, Maya and Ruben, you know, were happening quite naturally, but the others, I didn't really know what was going on. And so I put it down and I'm really grateful that other things happened to enable me to explore other creative projects. So I was involved Mm -hmm. in a show for the Sydney Festival and, you know, I I ended up writing a novella or a short story. Um, It was a very long short story that I'm now adapting into a TV show with Larissa Berendt. And that that had just been an exercise in creativity at the time, mm, something mm. to break away from the manuscript and to to give me a chance to trust my own creativity and to get it energized again. Mm. And so, you know, I, I wrote the novella. I was part of the Sydney Festival. I wrote a short story that Sweatshop published. There were some fun things that happened. And six months later, or five months later, maybe I came I came back to the manuscript. Um, and I felt rested and energized and that I missed my characters mm. and I was ready to go back to them and, um, and, to, and to try again. And at that point, COVID hit, um, you know, George Floyd was murdered. There was Asian hate going around the world. And it really, you know, this novel is about race, right? And Mm. so much of, you know, people of colour and countries in the developing world were far more profoundly affected and are still by COVID than than many other countries. Mm. And within first world countries, people of colour and marginalised communities are more profoundly affected by COVID. And so just all that rage and grief that I had felt um, was then accelerated and exacerbated and and I, I think with that I was just able to finish. I was able to do the last fifty thousand words, mm. and it wasn't. But it wasn't just rage and grief. It was it was that, and it was hope. So there was a really mm. there was a sense within me that if we if we keep doing if we keep trying to do better together, we will be okay. And mm. I think that's where the manuscript itself and the novel Tritome at Seven Gardens does end on that. You go on that journey of rage and grief with the characters, and I hope Mm. that you feel it too. Mm. And at the very end, feel a sense of hope in the strength of community. Mm -mm. So speaking of those characters, because as you say, you've written from um, different points of view, Um, you know, from Maya, from Angeli, from, you know, Ruben, different points of view. And in it's interesting because when I read um, some books that are written in multiple points of view, and uh, the author kind of, uh, I kind of recognise, oh, you've dropped that in there just so that I know it's so-and-so speaking or, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I can tell, of course, yes, that the point of view has changed and who it is. With yours, not only can I tell that the point of view has changed and who it is, obviously, it's like it's, 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 it's a, it's, a, it's a visceral experience in that I smell different things. I feel different things. The colour is different in, in you know, what I'm experiencing. The Everything is so distinctive in when we're changing from different points of view. Everything. It's not just words on the page. The entire experience, the reading experience is so distinctive. What do you think you do to make that happen? So firstly, thank you for that, Val, because it is, it's hard. I think it's hard to achieve. 
and it's important to achieve it. A big part of it is, is a legal concept called know your client. So as lawyers, we were always taught very early on in our legal careers to know your client. And it means mm-hmm. different things. Um, but fundamentally, it means know your client. And mm-hmm. so for me, it is know your character. So I spend a lot of time and it's often at night. So I'll write. But at the end of the day, when I go to bed, I will lie down um, and I'm not even sure my husband knows this. Um, he, probably <laughs> does. he doesn't listen to all my podcasts. So, um, because I'll lie down and, and go to sleep and think about the characters that I'm working on or the character that I want to write the next day. And I will say to them, I wonder what you're going to do tomorrow, Ruben. And I will go to sleep imagining or thinking, I don't know, you know, what are you doing? You're, you're constructing, you're writing, you're creating, you're allowing it to create itself. But I really am trying very hard to know them, but to also simply sit in the room with them. So that mm-hmm. by the time I'm coming to write a, chari- a chapter for Ruben or a chapter for Nikki, and I use, you know, the tricks of the trade, right? Every chapter is a discrete chapter, for a discrete character, unlike Damon Galgut's recent Booker Prize winning novel, where one scene, mm. you're in multiple shifting points of view. Mm. Um, I'm not technically that clever. Mm-hmm. So I will have one character per chapter, but I would have they would have sat inside my head the night before. Um, and and I would have thought mm. deeply about them. I would have really just felt as though I was in the room with them as I'm falling asleep. And then when I'm writing, I often am really just allowing myself to write what I'm seeing. So I am actually seeing it from their perspective. Mm. I am seeing, I'm not constructing it from their perspective. I'm seeing it from their perspective. And I am therefore smelling what they're smelling and feeling what they're feeling. And there are times I can catch myself just doing this. Like I'm, I'm holding my hand, but actually I'm feeling as though I'm holding Maya's hand so that I know the difference between her papery skin and Ruben's calloused skin. And, and it's a really, it's a beautiful feeling, right. To be Mm. so immersed in, um, in a scene or a moment and an emotion and to feel as though these people are with you and that you are with them. Mm. Um, And I remember a writing teacher once said to me, she said, don't make it up, just write it down. Mm. And that's very a very powerful statement when you think about it. Don't make it up, just write it down. Yes. So write down what you're seeing, but also allow yourself to see. Allow yourself to see, mm. allow yourself to feel what they're feeling. Um, and, you know, I think all of us writers and storytellers are deeply empathetic people. We're, we're both observant and attentive to the details and we are deeply empathetic. Mm. Um, Let's talk about that, observant and, observant and attentive to the details because I know many other authors who, you know, they are seeing it from the character's point of view. You know, they are experiencing those things and they are writing those things down. However, your level of observation is off the charts. And I think that that is what um, uh, makes it so seamless because every single sentence, when you actually deconstruct it, because I just can't help myself, (laughs) um, has so much in it and yet does not feel heavy, right? I've learned so much about 
whatever, whether it's about the character, about the setting, about the emotion, about the tiniest, tiniest details, I don't know whether you're doing that consciously or whether you're just naturally that observant. But I think that that is what brings you straight into the story and just keeps you there. And I keep using the word seamless because that's the only word I can think of at the moment. Um, And I tried to figure out why, because unlike, I mean, it's set in a nursing home, right? So it's not like the world is going about to self-destruct and there's, it's an action thriller and you're, and you, you know, it's, it's not the pace that's keeping you there. Right. So I was trying to figure out what's, what it was. And I do think that level of observation really brings the reader and into the world in such a way that many other books, quite frankly, don't. Is that a conscious thing that you try hard at or are you just annoyingly skilled? <laughs> well, now that you've tried, told me which answer you would prefer that. Um, no, so, no, 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 yeah, be, no. Be honest. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I will and I, and I, you know me well enough by now to know that I'm not, you know, I don't have tickets on myself <laughs> in any respect. I, um, I think... Again, there's it is very much a combination of both, right? But also, I think remember mm. that when it comes to observation, as I said to you with this novel, I feel like I have been um, it, it has been gestating in my mind and in my heart for decades because it explores what I'm seeing, what I've seen around me since I was a child. And so if I have been attentive and observant to the details and captured them, it's because I've been watching a very long time. And and so so much of this was simply an articulation Mm -hmm. of everything I've seen, thought and felt since I was little. And, And therefore, I think there are times when I wrote things down and didn't even realize that I was doing it until I went back to read it and thought, oh, well, I'm glad you remembered that, Shankari, from, you know, 1982, um, because my conscious mind didn't remember it, but my uncon- mm. unconscious mind had clearly filed it away for a novel that Shankari would one day write, <laughs> you know, four decades later. Um, and so, so there was absolutely an aspect of that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in the construction of a lot of the political and public narrative, that was very much researched um, and and really deliberate. So I went looking for, for example, and this was both easy and difficult to do, difficult to, I think, to, to get it right, but easy to find, is that, mm. that, that white right narrative, right? The, the mm. right wing, the very angry white narrative that exists. Um, and it's a vocal, it's a minority of people in the public space, but they are vocal and they are given a very large platform. They're very well paid and very powerful mm. to express certain views. And that could only be the case if they were speaking to a silent and significant presence within mm. the population. Um, therefore, I, and so therefore, that narrative, which I felt was really important to get right. I mean, every bit of any narrative is incredibly important to get right. But it was really important for me to feel that I had nailed that and done it justice so that everybody from my 
beautiful woke friends, you know, <laughs> my, my left-wing progressive work for not-for-profits in the justice space friends to, um, to people at the other end of the spectrum who may or may not ever want to pick up this novel um, and everybody in between could read that novel and not feel that it was a farce um, but rather a, an accurate social commentary. Mm. I don't want anyone to look at it and dismiss it for for being farcical because it isn't. Mm. I don't. Mm. I don't think it is. I think it mm. is an honest representation of something that plays out over and over again. And I wanted people with that particular narrative to really recognise that that Gareth. So Gareth is the character within this novel who drives a lot of the, the sort of racist um, actions that happen come from or because of Gareth. And so with Gareth, what I really wanted people to understand is that we're all a little bit like Gareth. We actually mm. all have Gareth inside us. We definitely all know Gareth. <laughs> Gareth, we've been to dinner with Gareth. Gareth comes to our house for dinner. Yeah. Um, we allow Gareth. We enable him. He makes jokes and we let them go. Sometimes we laugh at them politely. Sometimes we laugh at them because we thought that ourselves, but, you know, we're too polite to say it out loud. Mm. And all of that is something that I want to put up and out there and say, well, let's talk about that. Mm. Let's respectfully and constructively with humility and curiosity um, and actually with love, let's mm. deconstruct that together. Because if we don't do it in that way together, where this is un, this is only ever actually going to end badly, mm. and you know you look fifty years into the future or hundred years into the future, Sri Lanka from four hundred years ago headed in a particular direction towards war, and we don't have to be like that. We have an opportunity mm. to do differently, to do better. Do you think that the next book, the next novel you write, will have similar? themes or are you writing your next thing already oh yeah okay yeah I am um and it will it is absolutely exploring a a theme a a big and important theme in Australia and I'm Mm -hmm. feeling increasingly comfortable Val really occupying my own Australianness in its Mm -hmm. own form um, and I'm really enjoying that, actually. I'm really enjoying um, sitting within my Australianness and just saying, look, this is who I am and this is how I am. And it could actually just be a function of the fact that I'm 47 and I'm getting better at, at being comfortable in my own skin, right, sure. and in, in all the ways of that skin, ill-fitting such as it is. <laughs> um, and so, and and therefore to that end, this the next novel or is – again, centred in Australia, like this one, whereas my my other two, my first two were spent or were largely set in Sri Lanka. This next novel, like Tritomus and Gardens, is largely set in Australia. There will be some references to Sri Lanka, um, but it is, again, much more, as with Tritomus and Gardens, an exploration of life in Australia for a particular kind of migrant Mm. Um, and that's all I'm going to say about the new novel, but only right, because yeah. that's sort of where it's at. Mm, mm, mm. Um, but, you know, someone recently asked me, and, and he's a good friend and a, just a, a dear person, and he asked me, and, and he's a white Australian, and he said, you know, do you think that your next novel is going to be about Sri Lanka too? You know, are you are you just going to write about Sri Lanka or are you going to write about other things? <laughs> and I laughed and I just said, you know, 
I, I'm pretty sure that no one ever asks, you know, Jane Jane Harper or <laughs> Leah Moriarty or Trent Dalton if they're going to set another novel in Australia about white people. Um, <laughs> but but in answer to your question, <laughs> yes, it will be set partly in Sri Lanka and mostly in Australia this time. <laughs> oh, I can't wait. Okay, so um, finally, what was the well? penultimately finally what was the hardest or most challenging thing about writing it and what was the most rewarding wow I guess those two things could well be the same thing right (laughs) yeah Um, yeah I I think it, it goes back to the the reach of the ambition with this particular manuscript mm. or this particular novel um, because I was and, – and everything I've ever written about has been important to me, right? My first novel mm. was about three generations of a Sri Lankan-Australian Tamil family um, and their journey to Australia and how they survived the Sri Lanka Civil War. That is important to me. Um, but with this story, I, I think I also felt – that because of the themes I was going to attempt, and if I attempted them and got the, got it right, that it was a novel um, that would be that would call more attention to myself. So you know, writers are introverted, right? Well, I am. I, let me speak just for myself and not for mm-hmm. my writing community. <laughs> I am deeply introverted and also very shy and quite like my own company or that of my children and cousins, and, and that's kind <laughs> of it. And so. This novel felt, it felt very intimate. Mm. It felt very, I felt very exposed because I was literally telling you what I think and feel about what it means to live in this country, a country that I love Mm. and do not always feel accepted by. And it was therefore the most honest and intimate exploration that I could possibly, to the best of my ability, Mm. have put down on paper. It is my love letter to Australia. And as with all love letters, you know, there are moments of anger and grief in it and moments of of, of deep and abiding love. Mm. And so I felt very exposed in writing it. And that was the hardest thing, to, to, uh, to feel the confidence um, and the courage. No, it wasn't even the confidence. To feel the courage to expose myself in that way, to then reach for what I was reaching for with the novel, to write mm. something about race, um, and then to know whether or not I had achieved it. And I am my own worst critic or greatest critic. I am... I think I am hard on myself, but rightly so. And therefore, I wasn't sure if I would achieve what I set out to achieve. Wow. (laughs) Well, you knocked it out of the park. (laughs) Thank you. So so much to me coming from you. Oh, like uh, everyone needs to read this book. But anyway, let's finish on what are the top, what are your top three tips for aspiring writers who would like to be in a position where you are one day? Yeah. Um, I would say, firstly, just keep writing. So write as much as you can and write every day if you can. Even if it's just for 10 minutes, write, write, write. Because the more you write, the better you get. The more I write, the better I get. So I would say write. 
Secondly, I would say don't listen to other people who tell you that you can't do it, that you won't do it, that you'll never finish it, that it doesn't make any money, that it's not a real job, that it's just a hobby. Don't listen to those people. Just listen to yourself. Listen to your creative urge within. Listen to that creative drive and passion. Don't listen to them. Just listen to yourself. Mm -hmm. And thirdly, trust that when you put one word down, another word will come. So just, Mm. which essentially is my first piece of advice, just keep writing. When you put one word down, the next word will come. Wonderful. And on that note, congratulations on Chai Time in Cinnamon Gardens. It's just absolutely brilliant. Everyone get yourself a copy. Not only is it a fantastic novel in terms of its story and themes, get it because this woman has mastered the craft. I mean, this may be her third novel, but it's like she is a writing veteran that's been writing for decades and get it even just for that. So, you know, absolutely brilliant book. Thank you so much, Shankari. Thank you, Val. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. If you're serious about completing your own novel manuscript, immerse yourself in our inspiring and motivational six-month program, Write Your Novel. Filled with weekly workshopping and practical lessons, you'll receive advice on structure, dialogue and balance, as well as tips on publishing. This online program fits around your weekly schedule and you'll find extensive personal feedback from your tutor and classmates throughout the program. Find out more at writercentre.com.au slash novel writing. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Shankari. She's such an inspiration. We're almost at the end of this week's episode. What will you be doing in the coming week? I've had my fill of admin, so this week I'm going to be spending a lot of one-on-one time with my mentorees in the Freelance Writing Masterclass program. Now, every month, members of the program can get one-on-one time with me so that I can guide them through the pitches that they write before they send them to editors. And of course, I look at I look at the pictures before they send them. Now, some people, someone said to me the other day, why do they send them pictures? So I'm not saying pictures, P-I-C-T-U-R-E-S. I'm looking at their pictures, P-I-T-C-H-E-S, you know, where they are pitching their ideas to editors. So I give them feedback on, that, on those pictures before they send them to editors so that they have the best chance because I give them feedback on what they need to change, what they need to get rid of, what they need to include and so on. And of course, I also give them feedback on their writing. I'm also heading to Melbourne and I know some people out there in the community, uh, the listener community are heading there for the same event. Um, I can't say what that is right now because I've been sworn to secrecy, but I will let you know next week. In the meantime, feel free to connect with me on social media and then you'll probably find out what event I'm going to. Um, I'm on Instagram at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O, or just find me on Facebook or Twitter, uh, or connect with me via our podcast listener community also um, on Facebook. Thanks for listening, everyone, and I look forward to chatting to you again next time. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercentre.com.au slash podcast. 
or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writercentre.com.au slash news, where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions, and much more.